0: think kind of what made me me was taking big risks and training really hard. And I think that's what allowed me to have such high highs but it's also why i had so many low lows as well um i think if i would have taken the edge off my training i probably would have just been a lot more steady in my results and not so up and down and all over the map but i also in my mind i don't know if i would have gotten to the same place and for me like i would rather risk everything and see what what's gonna happen than you know play it safe
1: and just get to like me mediocre for me That's Ryan Hall, and this is episode 55 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back, or welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and every week on this show, I sit down with some of the top athletes, coaches, personalities, and behind-the-scenes people in the sport of running to glean as much insight and inspiration as I possibly can. And in this episode, we've got plenty of that from Ryan Hall. Ryan Hall. Ryan, who retired from the sport in 2016, is still the fastest American male marathoner and half marathoner of all time. He made two Olympic teams and finished in the top five at numerous world marathon majors, including a third place finish at Boston in 2008. We packed a lot into this 45-minute conversation, including Ryan's reflections on retirement and when he realized that he couldn't push himself to the level that he wanted to in running anymore. We talked about battling extreme fatigue toward the end of his career and what he might do differently in retrospect, especially as a high school athlete who trained hard from a young age. There was some talk about nature versus nurture, body image issues amongst male runners, and where his own independent and competitive streak come from. We got into his attraction to Ethiopia and what led he and his wife Sarah to adopt four daughters from that country. We talked about his upcoming new book, Run the Mile You're In, and what that phrase means to him exactly, and a whole lot more. There's a lot of good stuff in here, so please enjoy my recent chat with one of the greatest American marathoners of all time, Ryan Hall. Ryan Hall, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Mario. It's been a while since we've chatted. Probably, I would guess about three years now, which coincidentally is when you retired from the sport of running. So why don't we just start there? Do you ever think about the fact that three years ago at this time is when you stepped away from the sport for good? (laughs) Yeah, I do think
0: about it mainly in the sense that when I'm in the weight room, I'm always like comparing to where I used to be, you know, so it's kind of fun to like reflect back on strength wise where I was at three years ago. And then also, you know, there's those moments when you get like the Google photo emails like you (laughs) like a year ago or three years ago and you look at those
1: pictures and like my kids are like,
0: dad, you're so skinny, like no, one recognize you. (laughs)
1: Three years ago, you were what, like 140, maybe 150 because you had already stopped running for a little while?
0: Yeah, I put on weight pretty quick. But so in September, before I retired, I got down to my lightest ever, which was 127. And I don't know, that might have been part of the problem in hindsight. Uh, I think I was just way too light. I always raced my best at 137. So when I retired, I was right about that, like 137. And then uh, today, I'm... Just slightly heavier than that at
1: 183. (laughs) Do you feel like a completely different person than you did when you stepped away from the sport three years ago?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, running and running at the level that elite marathoners run at is just – it's taxing on the body, as you can imagine, you know? So I was just, I was very tired all the time, even when things were going really well, you know, where I have to block out my afternoons and take two hour naps every afternoon or else I'm just a basket case, you know? And so I just felt kind of generally like low energy and like not a lot of motivation. Um, part of that could have been because like testosterone levels are usually low in endurance athletes as they were in my case. And then you go from that to the complete opposite where i'm involved in weight training and doing a very anabolic activity compared to running that's very catabolic in nature and so now i feel terrible when i run but that's the only part of my day when i feel terrible (laughs) what sparked your interest in weightlifting when you stepped away from running Yeah, it's funny that I got into it because I used to hate lifting when I was running. I would just try and get through the weight room like as quick as I could. Like just didn't see a lot of purpose behind it and didn't feel like I was actually accomplishing a whole lot. Um, And I do think it's important. You know, now as a coach, I have my athletes doing weights. But um, what I like to think of is like effective use of their time weights. Um, But to answer your question, um, I was just I, I needed to find in way to stay true to who i am and who i am is like i just love pushing myself i love i gotta have something every single day that i'm like physically exhausting myself in so weights kind of became a fun outlet to do that and plus i was so weak that there was nowhere to go but up so i knew that i was gonna have a big improvement curve and then also too like I'm just kind of like a guy of extreme. So when I was running in 137 pounds, I remember walking around and, you know, you interact with like a big guy who's 200 to 250 pounds and all this muscle on him. And I remember just always being a little bit curious about that and be like, man, I wonder what that feels like. That's so different than, you know, my life experience thus far. So after I retired, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to see what it's
1: like to at least go on the journey to try and get big and strong. When did you hit that point in running where you realized that you couldn't push yourself to the level that you were accustomed to and that you wanted to?
0: It was a repeated uh, experience. So I've always tried to be really careful not to make any important decisions in the wake of disappointment. Um, I'm just a pretty emotional person in general. So if You know, I have a bad race or bad workout. It's really easy for me to just make really poor decisions. So rather than doing that, I just, you know, I kept believing in trying everything I could think to try to turn my body around and to have it start absorbing training well and to start to get back in shape. And I did have my moments where I felt like I was going that direction and getting better. And then I always had this same experience of kind of I just call like extreme fatigue, where I would just go out, I try to go for a run, I'd run like 15 minutes and walk back, and just because like I just felt like I was melting into the ground, I just felt super super tired. And so after you know four years of battling with that, four years of battling with uh, kind of repeated injury cycles, I just. I remember being on the airplane. I don't remember where I was heading from, but just taking a good look at the last four years, a big block at a time, being like, listen, like since, since I got hurt at the London Olympics, like I've not been close to back to where I was, you know, and the further you get from that kind of fitness, the harder it is to get back, especially as you get older, you know, but it just became really clear that my body was communicating to me, you know, I've given you everything I can possibly give you. And now it's time for you to give back to me. And so thus, you know, the weight training and,
1: um, the new season of life began. How hard of a decision was that for you to walk away from this thing that you had been doing for 20 years of your life to that point?
0: Yeah, I was always nervous, you know, about the moment I'd retire because I was like, oh man, this has been my passion, my joy, my, my journey for so long that I, I thought I would, you know, maybe battle with depression and sadness, which I've battled with before. But actually, you know, I I retired. and I didn't tell anyone for a, a, beer, a period of time just so I could try it on and make sure that that's what I wanted to do. And then I forget the amount of time I kind of tried it on for before I told A6 I was going to retire. But it was about, I don't know, a couple weeks or a month or something like that. And I remember, you know, when I finally made the decision, I was like, okay, I'm done. And that was prior to – I try, I was trying to train for the 2016 trials and just having this extreme fatigue experience over and over again. And so that was the point where I was like, okay, like I've had enough. And it actually, you know, it – I felt a a deep sense of relief almost like it felt good to move on with my life. It felt like for the last four years, I had just been beating my head against a wall and trying to make something happen that my body wasn't allowing to happen. So I actually felt like a lot of peace about it. it wasn't very emotional for me until uh, Asics came out with that like uh, retirement video that they put out on I think YouTube or their social channels. And I didn't even watch like the day that they announced my retirement. Like Sarah and I were joking, and it kind of felt like I died or something. Cause <laughs> everyone's like, like play, you know, posting their comments about how sad they are and stuff like that. And it, it kind of did feel like a season of my life. It was like dying because I guess it did you know but anyways i remember uh later on in the day people a six were texting me like hey have you watched the video yet i was like no i haven't had time i'm like dropping the <laughs> goods off and doing all this stuff so i remember we stopped at a gas station i was filling up the gas tank because like all right let me just put this on and check out this video and luckily luckily for me it was getting dark because that was like the only moment where like i shed any tears about retirement and it was funny, like the video. The two moments that really captured me were, you know, when they're showing Dina, Meb sarah um all the people who've been on the journey with me you know just sharing their best wishes to me and then the other moment was watching my dog kai run through the forest on the video and just seeing her like in full flight just like gobbling up the ground you know and just being like man i remember what that feels like and uh you know i'll probably never experience that again that was that was kind of a sad sad moment for me
1: Aside from Sarah, obviously, and then having to tell ASICS, your sponsor, did you discuss the possibility of retirement with anyone else or share the news with any former training partners or close friends, family, before it went public? That's a good question. I don't remember that. <laughs> I should have. That would have been the nice thing to do, huh? <laughs> uh, um,
0: <laughs> I, I mean, obviously, I discussed it a lot with Sarah and my parents. But, and also like some close friends, but kind of close friends that weren't in the running circle as much. Um, but no, I don't think I like reached out and told a whole lot of people about it in advance. So I think everyone kind of heard the
1: news at the same time. <laughs> You're a very deeply religious person. How much did prayer play? in your life at or what role I should say did prayer play in your life at that time as you were deciding whether or not you should continue trying to run or step away from it
0: yeah it was huge you know like i believe that like god is always trying to speak to all of us and uh like that moment on the airplane i was telling you about one of the things i remember talking it over with god in my mind and just feeling like he was telling me it wasn't meant to last forever And that just like brought so much peace to me because I was feeling so much like guilt and shame about feeling like I messed things up, you know, and like I was doing something wrong. And I felt like you just tell me like, actually, this doesn't last forever for anyone. and Like we all get old and slow down. And at some point we got to hang up our shoes. And so like moments like that where you're just like flooded with peace, I think that's how I've learned to kind of discern God's voice in my life is his, his words are always full of like encouragement and peace. And even if it's like hard words for us to hear, like it's not supposed to last forever, like that's, that could be kind of a hard thing to hear. But when it's coming from the father and from his love, it just brings just a ton of peace with it. And so it just became very
1: clear that that this was the right decision to make. And. As I alluded to earlier, the announcement went out about this time three years ago, which was right before the 2016 Olympic trials in L.A. Was that a hard event for you to watch from the sidelines? It was hard, yeah. Yeah, the – The first
0: year in general, I felt like a fish out of water at running events. So I was still like going to the Boston Marathon. I'm still like an ambassador for the John Hancock Elite Team, and so I still go to like various events. And the first year, like, just felt weird. Part of it too is like I had put on all this weight, and so everyone thought, like I was just getting really fat, which was frustrating <laughs> for me. Cause I was like, okay, like I'm not like runner super lean anymore, but I'm not fat, you know, like I'm, I'm putting on some muscle here. So that's when I had to come out with the the uh, shirtless selfie on Twitter just <laughs> just to like calm that down a little bit because it was getting bad. I mean, and people were like not recognizing me and stuff. Like I remember one time Sarah's running one in marathon so April after I retired and uh we were going up the elevator with uh, I think it was Tim Hutchins is that how you say his name the TV commentator Tim Hutchins like yeah. Yeah, and so we're in the elevator and he's like, Oh, Sarah, how's it going? Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, Is Ryan here? And I was standing right next to her. <laughs> and he saw me, you know. And uh she's like, Yeah, he's right here. It's my bodyguard. He's like, Whoa <laughs> yeah. He like just totally like did a double take in. It was just kind of like awkward moment. So I had a lot of those kind of moments where I just felt like just felt weird for the first year. But um, you know, now it feels totally normal and I feel like Definitely, you know, kind of moving into the coaching realm has helped like kind of reconnect with the running community in a way that um, feels kind of healthier on my end.
1: You guys had a lot going on when you stepped away from the sport. You had just adopted your four girls from Ethiopia just a few months prior, I imagine. Um, It wasn't that far off. I think it was late 2015. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. It was October of 2015. So between wrestling with that decision of what to do with your running career, you grew your family exponentially in like one fell swoop and had to adjust to life as not only a retired runner, but as a new dad of four girls from a different country. How easy may not be the right word, but what was it like at that time to be stepping away from this one part of your life and to be starting a whole new one?
0: You know, I'm, I'm grateful that I actually had a lot of things kind of going on in my life in that point. And I should say too, like, um, it might be easier for easy for people um to think maybe I retired because I became a dad but it was really like totally the opposite like I was so fired up and motivated I wanted my kids to see me run at my best you know and even when I retired they're always like dad you should start running again like even now like they'll occasionally say stuff like that I'm like nah I just need to get on YouTube and like watch some videos <laughs> it's <not happening. laughs> but uh you know to answer your question I I'm glad that like I was taking on a new role as a dad and trying to support Sarah as much as I, as I could. Cause you know, like I think I took a lion's share of the support in our relationship, um, up really like kind of until that moment. So it was nice to be able to just like fully get behind her and support her and then see that kind of gradually over time
1: help in, in her process and development as a marathon runner. How hard was that adjustment to become parents for the first time, not just for you and Sarah, but on the other end for the girls who are coming to this country that they had never been to before and a culture that they'd never experienced?
0: Yeah, we had some uh, some fun moments, you know, Uh, like I remember when we First came over and they hopped on the elevator for the first time like they started screaming as soon as it started moving they're like what's going on right now Um, and then like another moment we're in the grocery store and they're putting these like the like produce bags on their head and like dancing around the grocery store so yeah, we had some kind of like fun moments like that but actually you know in their orphanage they'd watched a lot of Disney films and a lot of movies in general because they weren't allowed to go out Um, so they'd actually been exposed to quite a bit of American culture Culture. They still didn't know the language. None of them spoke English, and were even like close to speaking English. Uh, so there was still a big adjustment there, and they hadn't been to much school at all. So the school thing was really hard. But you know, the the Ethiopian culture is just one of like like excellence in general so like it was drilled into them especially in the orphanage like you got to make the most of this opportunity because it's kind of like a golden opportunity for you you know so like you got to like work super hard at school so we came back um, from Ethiopia. And we spent about a month there together with them before we came to the U S. And, uh, when we got here the first week, they went straight into school, not knowing any English at all, you know, but they were like excited to go to school. Cause that's like a privilege to them, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was a big challenge and it continues to be a big challenge, especially for our oldest Hana You know, she's a junior in high school and she's just, it, she's trying to catch up on a lot of ground that she missed and um it's requiring a ton of extra work she but she works so hard she'll get up at 5 a.m doing homework and just putting hours and hours of of work in with homework and then she's also running on top of that so it's been really inspiring just to see them kind of like go after this opportunity that they have and to really um, be doing so
1: well with it Prior to adopting the girls from Ethiopia, you and Sarah had spent quite a bit of time training there. What was your attraction to that country in particular? Yeah,
0: we just fell in love with the country and the people. Like they just have such a a pride about them. Um, You know, we've been in other parts of the developing world where as an American, you kind of feel like you're a dollar bill walking around, you know, like just getting hit up all the time. Whereas in Ethiopia, like, we would like catch a ride with the taxi driver and he would like not let us pay him because we're like guests of his or something, you know, like they just have such a, a pride about them. I think part of it is because they were never colonized. Um, I believe they're the only country in Africa that was never colonized. And so, you know, that part of it, also their work ethic is just insane. Like one of the images I would always have burned in my mind when I was training for marathons uh, over in Ethiopia was every day we, drive past these women who are walking um, from Intoto, the mountain Intoto, down to Addis and then back up and carrying just the most massive loads of firewood you've ever seen in your life. And most of them look like they're like my grandmother's age. And just seeing the look of determination in their face and seeing how hard they're willing to work. Um, for so little it was just tremendously inspiring for us and then part of it too is you know we saw all the orphan kids over there on the streets in Addis and so you know we wanted to be a part of the solution and it's kind of like our foundation the Hall Steps Foundation we realized like adopting four sisters from Ethiopia is is a nice step to take but it's like it, the the problem is millions of orphans you know right. so we need to like be a part of the solution, but everyone's got to like, take a step and do
1: something. Hey, let's take a quick break. So I can thank our sponsor for this episode. It is rise run retreat. Rise run retreat is a four day women's running retreat. It takes place from May 16th to the 19th in Vermont. And it was founded on the idea that when women come together through running, they inspire and strengthen one another. Nestled in the Green Mountains, the picturesque village of Woodstock serves as the backdrop to all of Rise Run Retreat's activities. You'll explore country lanes, run through gentle wooded trails, and listen to inspiring guest speakers and participate in numerous workshops. Joining host Sarah Canny at Rise Run Retreat this spring is Sally McRae. She's a professional ultra runner, coach, and all-around inspiration. Quick side note, I happen to coach Sally, and let me tell you, she's got amazing energy, an incredible story, and you will just love spending some time hanging out with her for four days in Vermont. In addition, guests will hear from Kristen Shefshunas. She's a confidence coach to female athletes at the collegiate, professional, and Olympic level. You'll also have the chance to work with injury prevention specialist and running coach Kim Nato. Guests will take part in group runs, restorative yoga, and cross-training sessions, and you'll also have the chance to sit by the fire pit, soak in the jacuzzi, or just find a quiet spot to relax. Sounds pretty amazing to me. Limited to just 16 women. Sorry, guys. The small-scale setting makes for a unique and impactful experience. Registration for the retreat, that is May 16th to 19th, includes all of your lodging, wholesome meals provided by the local farmer's market, and an amazing swag bag. With only seven spots still available, registration is sure to fill up quickly before the April 7th deadline. So head over to Riserunretreat.com and use the code TMSPOD. That's all caps and save a hundred bucks off your registration fee. My thanks to Rise Run Retreat for supporting the podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Running in Ethiopia, it's their national sport. They celebrate The history of it, the Olympic and world champions who have come out of the country, it is like the NBA is here. People are aware of the sport. When you adopted the girls, were they aware of you and Sarah's prominence in running and did they have an interest in it themselves or was it something that – they didn't have much interest in up to that point of their life because now your oldest, Hannah is running in high school and very well at that. And I've seen you post videos of your younger girls doing some workouts. So I'd love to dig into that connection for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. They did not know like who we were for
0: sure until like they learned that we were going to adopt them. And then I think some of the nannies and caretakers would kind of tell them. Um, and then, you know, we'd show them some videos when we'd come over to visit them because the whole adoption process took about nine months, which is actually really fast for international adoption. Um, so we'd go over there and train over there and then visit them during the day because they weren't allowed to leave the orphanage. Um, whenever we'd be over there training so we actually spent quite a bit of time with them before the adoption finalized so they kind of got to know us a little bit and what we we're into but i don't think they like fully kind of realized that like people in the running community generally know who we are or anything like that and they did follow the like ethiopians like they knew who dababa and defar and Haile they know knew those guys were but they didn't know who we were <laughs> um so yeah, can ever tell they, them
1: like we used to race against them, or we did, well at the time you did race against many of right. those names.
0: Yeah, I think I did like show them a picture of me in London next to Highley and um, a couple of photos where Sarah's racing indoors against Ababa and stuff like that. So yeah, we did show them a little bit.
1: Um, how have you introduced running to them now that they're living here in the U.S. and in school and around you and Sarah who? are still heavily involved in the sport on different levels.
0: Yeah. We've tried to, you know, just let them kind of come to it on their own if they are going to come to it. I mean, I think thing is like kids, they observe their parents 24 seven, you know, so they're just around running a ton now. So I think it's just kind of a natural thing for them to want to try it for themselves. Um, so really like Hana, our oldest, she was the one who like fully bought in, was super excited to, to go after it. And to be honest, like when we first adopted her, I was like, man, if I can just like get her to finish a 5k, that'd be amazing. Cause she was in such bad physical shape after sitting in a home for three years. You can imagine, you know, what that would do if you like hardly ever got outside for three year period of time um, but it really she was just consistent in her training you know and like just got better and better and better and um, just been putting in the time putting in the work and um, just just growing but our other, our other two girls it's kind of hard to be honest as a dad because I watched him run like every once in a while we have a treadmill on our house they'll hop on there and we'll, we'll make them run sometimes just to like get some energy out we're like you guys have way too much energy like you have to run it a mile on the treadmill right now so they're there are some runs that are like this is a non-negotiable but for the most part we're like okay like whatever sports you guys want to do like choose them you know um, but when i watch my younger two especially i watch their strides on the treadmill i'm just like oh they need to run but they're not into it at all they're like playing basketball and all kinds of different sports and that's totally fine like i'm gonna get behind whatever they're doing but you just see Oh, man, just so much natural ability um, that comes from kind of the genetic makeup of Ethiopians.
1: Yeah, you can see it in their nature. Yeah, totally. And that's a topic that you touch on a little bit in your book, which we'll get into a little more here in a bit, is this nature versus nurture thing. And where it really opened your eyes, you said, is with weightlifting. When – you transitioned to doing this very different form of exercise than than running, and you didn't have the body of a weightlifter. It wasn't necessarily in your nature, but you were able to to nurture that. And as you've alluded to a couple times here, like your body is transformed; it's totally changed. And I'd love to just dig into the whole nature versus nurture thing and what you have learned about that classic debate as you've transitioned out of running and have committed yourself to this new pursuit of weightlifting.
0: Yeah, it's been an interesting little experience. You know, like I remember when I was first getting into weights, I was like, man, I'm going to get up to like 250 pounds. And now I'm at like 183, but like the scale is not budging. Like I can't put on, I'm eating 5,000 calories a day and I cannot put on a pound. Um, so there, I'm kind of finding the lines now, you know, the genetic component of being like, okay, like I can get myself very strong for me, but like, I would never dream of entering a legit weightlifting competition. Like I would just get absolutely destroyed by like the women, you know? So, (laughs) um, I'm kind of finding those lines, but it's still like a really fun experience to have, to feel yourself changing is just really, really gratifying for me. Like to be, to have like today I was doing squats and I hit a PR in the squat. I think I squatted 385. And just to have been under that weight before so many times and not been able to get it back up. And then when you finally get it, you're just like, whoa, I just like felt my body like grow and become something that it wasn't before. And so I just find it to be like really addicting to see the growth. And I think a lot of people probably sell themselves short of being like, uh, like I could never be big. Like I remember having a conversation with Amby Barefoot about this and he's like, I, I can't get big. I was like, well, how much are you eating? And he's like 1500 calories a day or two hundred, two thousand 2000 calories a day. I was like, well, that is your problem. Like <laughs> your body's not going to make something out of nothing, you know? So you gotta, you gotta have. I have all the foundational pieces in place, whether it's weightlifting or running or whatever you're into, like the nutrition, the sleep, the recovery, like all that has to be on point if you're going to maximize your own personal um, ability. And that's kind of what I've had to focus on with weightlifting. Like like I'm never going to be, like I said, winning any strongman competitions or winning any weightlifting competitions. Although I will say probably the only one I could ever possibly win in is the one I I posted a video of me trying to bench press my PR in the marathon 20 <laughs> times. And I, I almost got it. I was like a half inch away. I don't know how you get a half inch away from the, on the 20th rep and not be able to do it, but somehow I couldn't get the weight up. So what do you uh, have up there?
1: 204?
0: Well, I had 205 because I don't have, I don't have like a little one pound plates. (laughs) So if it's 204, I could have gone. But anyways, I'd be super curious if any of the listeners out there, like I'd be curious to see someone else take on the challenge, put your PR in the marathon and weight on the bench press and see how many reps you can do
1: with it. Oh man, I know for me. Well, it doesn't get any easier as you get slower, right? (laughs) Well, that's the problem for most people. Yeah. You're a three, four hour marathoner, that's a lot of weight that you got to try (laughs) to put up even even half a time never mind 20 times um <laughs> that feeling that you described with weight and being able to like you said today like squat a pr is it similar to what you felt when you were running and chasing faster and faster times on the track and on the roads it's the same kind of
0: a sensation of accomplishment for sure it's like it feels so good But it's kind of interesting now because I lived in my garage by myself, you know. So if I don't like post about it on social, it's just like no one knows (laughs) it even happened, you know. Maybe I'll tell Sarah, but for the most part, it's like not not as uh, widely celebrated as – as my running was. So that, that piece of it is a little bit different, but definitely like equally gratifying. I will say though, like the sensation of just flying, like, like when I ran the half marathon, for example, like I would take that experience over benching 500 pounds, not, not that I've ever benched 500 pounds, but you know, benching a PR, for example, I would take Take that experience any day, just because the sensation of just floating over the ground. As you know, a lot of the listeners um, listening now know that feeling of like when you're just on and just flying, and you just feel like the faster you go, the better you feel. Like that sensation cannot be replicated in the weight room, but um, the the feeling of accomplishment after seeing your body grow and improve is the same.
1: Do you miss that sensation of just flying? through the forest or down the road at an effortless speed.
0: Yeah, for sure. But that's kind of part of the reason why I try and run as minimally as possible now, because it feels so completely different. And it's kind of like, I want to remember it like at its best, you know? And like, Just be able to like think back on those experiences and be like, man, that was so sweet. Whereas like if I go out and run now, it's just gonna I'm just gonna be like, oh, this feels terrible. I feel like a lumbering giant going through the forest.
1: (laughs) One thing that jumped out at me is you describing how you go to your garage by yourself and you're putting up weight and it's just you in there and no one but Sarah and maybe your daughters know about it. And for a good chunk of your professional running career, especially toward the end, you did a lot of your work solo, uh, especially once you split from Mammoth Track Club and and Terrence's group. You were on your own largely. Where does that independent streak come from?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's it's just kind of my makeup, you know, like I've just always kind of been that way where Sarah and I kind of joke about this because like, for example, she'll love to go to like spin classes rather than like spin by herself, you know, because she likes the like atmosphere of having other people around. Whereas like, I like to quote unquote, suffer in solitude. Like I just like to be by myself and suffer. (laughs) Um, and so I think a lot of that just comes from, experience um you know i got into the sport a lot of the workouts and running was done on my own so i kind of just got used to that um but you know as i reflect back on things and mammoth track club and stuff like i I think america is going the right dis uh the right direction with distance running of like forming these groups you know um we're definitely better together than we are on our own so part of me is like I'm I'm glad that I made the decision I made to leave the Mammoth Track Club, but now I just see like a tremendous value in surrounding yourself with like-minded people who are going to be encouragers for you along your journey.
1: Along those lines, looking back at your career, would you do anything differently in retrospect?
0: (sighs) That's a good uh, question I have thought a lot about. Um, Yeah, I think I would switch up some things about my training. In particular, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, actually, because I'm coaching about 12 athletes right now, some in person, um, some online. And just a lot of them are getting banged up. And I know that's just kind of like a normal thing with running to some extent. But thinking about like how can we prevent some of these things from popping up. And I was just reflecting back on it recently about when I did leave the marathon Track Club. I went to training six days a week instead of training seven days a week. Which was an idea like I got from my faith and how, you know, the Sabbath, God resting on the seventh day. And, you know, I had like tremendous success with that for, you know, until all the injuries and stuff ensued. Um, and then guys like Bernard Legat, I know he only trains six days a week and, uh, and I'm sure there's others out there who've had success with that as well. But there's kind of little things like that. I'm like, I wonder if I could have prevented things from flaring up with me if I had, you know, built rest into the program rather than like waiting till I was banged up or super tired. Um, to to take rest, and then the other thing I'd say is just I kind of you know bought into the lie that lighter is better and lighter is faster, and, and it's 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 a tricky one because it is true to some extent. Like I was definitely better at 137 pounds than I was at 142 pounds, but I kind of just kept trying to like get lighter and lighter and lighter throughout my career. And looking back at the pictures, even I'm like, man, like I even like look. A lot weaker say when med won boston that year i think i was pretty light at that boston marathon and uh, i just didn't look strong it didn't look as healthy as say like pictures of me running the houston half marathon so i, w- I would change that you know i would have just parked it at 137 and never gone below that um that would have been the wise move to make but Again, it's easy to see that in hindsight, you know, but when you're the one going through it, you're like, man, I wonder how much better I'd feel if I was 10 pounds
1: lighter than that. Right. And that's something I struggled with or struggled with previously in, in my own competitive career. And I think it's something that a lot of men struggle with, but just don't talk about. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's pretty like open for women, I feel like. But it's definitely like an issue on, on the men's side in our sport for sure. And so it's one of those things where I talk about this in my book about not comparing yourself to other people. Because so I can remember even being in high school, driving up to the state meeting track. And I remember looking at my ankles and I'm like, man, my ankles look so much bigger than like – african guys in their ankles you know and it's just really easy to like look on the starting line at people next to you or some of them are the best guys in the world being like i need to look exactly how they look right and that's such a, a trap you know you need to be the best version of yourself the strongest version of yourself and like completely depleting yourself for a long period of time like It works in some cases for women for a very short amount of time, but in terms of longevity, like that is not the way to go. And I would argue it's not the way to achieve your highest potential because your highest potential takes years and years and years to get to. So if you're in a rush to get there and your way to get there is just to lose a bunch of weight, uh, um, I think you're in for not reaching your highest
1: potential. Yeah, I think you're spot on with all of that. And let's go back even further. Your competitive career spans 20 years from the time that you were 13 first got into the sport all the way till you retired when you were 33. And I know from looking at your high school training and reading about it, you trained really hard from high school all the way through college and then throughout your professional career. Knowing what you know now, as a high schooler, would you have done anything differently in terms of your training volume or intensity? And if you had done something differently, do you think you would have been able to extend your career beyond where it ended? Mm
0: Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I don't think I actually would have done a whole lot differently. Although, I remember my senior year, I took Accutane for acne, you know, that I was battling. And I remember just getting really depleted from that. So, like, that was a really bad thing for me during my senior year that I wouldn't do again. But in terms of actual training, um, I guess I should say that I would do things differently because I don't train my daughter the same way that I was training. You know, when I was in high school, um, my senior year, I was doing 10-mile threshold runs at five-minute pace at sea level, not at altitude, um, and running up to 100 miles a week. And I don't I don't train my daughter that way, and I do, kind of like I was talking about, try and build rest into her program more. Um But I think kind of what made me me was taking big risks and training really hard. And I think that's what allowed me to have such high highs, but it's also why I had so many low lows as well. Um, I think if I would have taken the edge off my training, I probably would have just been a lot more steady in my results and not so up and down and all over the map. But I also, in my mind, I don't know if I would have gotten to the same place. And for me, like I would rather risk everything and see what, what's going to happen. than you know, play it safe and just get to like me mediocre for me. Like I wanted to be the best version of me that I could be. And I feel like I kind of, I hit that. I got to that point and it might have cost me a couple years on my career but at the same time you know it's easy to like look at guys like meb and dina and uh, a lot of runners who have aged really well and are doing you know bernard lagat Running super well into their 40s, but really like those are the outlier experiences, you know. Like most people, they run collegiately, and maybe they try for a couple years to run professionally. But most pro careers, I don't know what the stat is. I don't even know if there is a stat, but I would argue that it's it's pretty short, the average pro life of a runner. So like, I'm actually grateful for you know all the years that I did have, and uh, I might not have you know had as many as Meb had or some of those other guys, but. um in comparison, I feel, I feel blessed that I had as many years as I did. Where
1: do you think the seed of that particular personality trait that you carried was planted?
0: I think it was planted in my mom's womb. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. There was not like any like particular moment where, um, I've just always been that way from, from birth.
1: (laughs) You know, I had read that you, are naturally competitive person, which sounds like it by the way that you've described it, but that you tried to temper that sometimes, um, because it wasn't a reflection of how you felt God would have wanted you to be. Was that an internal struggle for you to, to navigate that sort of thing?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my, That was my experience for many years with running. But as kind of my faith developed and and grew, um, I remember just reading this passage where Jesus is talking to Peter. He's telling Peter how he's going to die, which is a pretty heavy subject, you know. And then Peter, he— his response to jesus is to look at john the disciple john be like well what about him how is he gonna die and jesus is like if i want him to remain to the end what is that to you like you follow me and that just like really hit home with me that i was so distracted by what god had for other people and comparing how fast i was relative to everyone else and i realized like that's not what it's about it's about running after god and staying as close to him as you possibly can and in that vein like It's about personal excellence. And that's what I should be celebrating more than if, like, I won this race. And so, like, for example, at the Boston Marathon, running 204 there. Still, the fourth fastest time ever run at Boston, if I'm correct. And yet, I was fourth, and I could have been like very upset with that result, but I didn't feel upset at all. Like, I was stoked because, like, that was a symbol of like personal excellence. And I've just found that in my career for it to be so much more fulfilling for me to compete with this notion of like not only am I trying to get the best out of myself, I'm going to try and get the best out of my competitors. And I find that I can go deeper, I can go harder, I can find stuff that i didn't know was inside me when i have that mindset compared to when i'm looking on the starting line being like man i'm not letting that guy beat me and it kind of goes back to i don't know if you've ever done this experiment where you put your arm out and someone tells you like think about someone that you hate and then they push your arm down to see how well you can resist how strong you are and then you do the same thing but the second time you think about someone you love and you're always like so much stronger when you're thinking about someone you love and so i think there is like a a science behind it that it's actually better to compete out of a heart of love and encouragement than to compete out of this heart of like fear of failure
1: or wanting to beat someone else. I think you nailed it. And I think for me, it reminds me of when a lot of the African runners talk about. Competition. They call their competitors – they don't call them competitors. They call them their colleagues and they're working together to make each other better versions of themselves and that's something that's always stuck with me and I think it resonates a lot with what you just described right there
0: yeah i love that and i you know what else i love about the african guys is like after say the boston marathon new york city marathon like i'm walking around in the athlete recovery area and i can't tell like who had a good race and who had a bad race amongst the africans because like they just don't take their failures personally like they don't see it as like i am a failure because i failed today whereas like that's kind of my default and i think maybe the default for a lot of americans um is just to like take it really personal when you fail whereas like they're just like "Ah, i didn't have it today but i can like be joking around now it's no big deal like i'm gonna go back out and try again next week you know and i just i just loved i was so inspired by that mentality when i was running professionally
1: yeah i think that's a definite societal thing we've only got a few more minutes here so couple more things that I want to hit on. I've got a copy of your upcoming book in my hand, Run the Mile You're In. It's due out in April. Let's just start with the title of the book, Run the Mile You're In. What does that phrase mean to you?
0: That's just something I would tell
1: myself over and over again. I might – Trying to remember
0: who I—I I definitely ripped that off from someone. It wasn't an original thought. I think it might have been Terrence, who was you know my coach in Mammoth Track Club, um, about just being like present in the mile you're in, and it just helped me a lot with marathons because it's it's so easy to start thinking about all the miles in front of you, how hard it's going to be at mile 20, not knowing if you can make it to mile 20 at this pace, and I had to always pull myself back and be like, don't worry about all those miles like, just do a good job with the mile that you're in right now, be present. And like, God's going to give you the grace that you need for this mile, not for mile 20. Like, he'll give that to you when you get there. And that just helped kind of relieve, like, I think the worry about the struggle sometimes is worse than actually struggling or traveling the road, you know, but when you're wor- so worried about what's to come, at least for myself. Like it would just, feel like a weight i was carrying around and the only way for me to take that weight off was just to remind myself run the mile you're in run the mile you're in it's like mindfulness which is all the rage these days right yeah exactly and and there's a reason why it's a rage you know like it it's effective
1: as you were writing it did it cause you or force you to see anything differently as you were recounting it and then putting it down on paper it's a
0: great question um I wouldn't necessarily say it caused me to it, it caused me to go deeper. I I would say that for sure. I I just had to really like at times like try and make sense of of different chapters in my life so to say and how it it did fit into the big picture and and try and pull out like what was the gold in that moment? Even though, like, I share a lot about my failures, um, races that didn't go well in the book, and pull out from those, like, there was actually something good in this moment that I need a lesson I needed to learn, and that now I need to try and pass on to others.
1: Last bit, so we've only got a couple of minutes here. We'll do three very quick hit questions. Number one: Who's the toughest person that you've ever raced against? <sighs>
0: You know, what? actually, the first person that comes to my mind is Dathan. <laughs> Dathan, he's a tough guy, like especially U.S. Cross. You know, I thought I had him and uh he, was, he and he wasn't 100 percent going into that race. But he's he, that guy can he can go deep. He can push hard. So I'm going to go with that.
1: You guys had another classic battle at NCAAs. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had a couple. We had a couple of good ones. Your proudest
0: achievement in running. See my 59 minute half marathon. Um I feel like that was the best shape I ever got in my life and where uh, I was the most on that that I ever was. Last question,
1: what's next for Ryan Hall?
0: And I want to be a part of uh breakthrough especially in the men's marathon for the US. Uh you know looking at at the scene now like we're kind of kind of behind the rest of the world. Um and i I think we have the talent here. Yeah, you know, that's why we moved part of the reason why we moved to Flagstaff so that I could start a uh, professional running here and, and uh, try and work with some guys to, you know, I think breaking 210 should be an ordinary thing. It's, I, I still, I don't feel like it's that hard of a thing to do. So, you know, I'm hoping that I can be a part of that solution. I know there's a lot of great coaches out there that are, are working towards that same goal.
1: Yeah. It's pretty wild because your personal best in the marathon, whether you want to count it as Boston or when you're in 206 at London would still be the fastest time here in the country. And beyond that, there's, you know, you got Galen who's run 206 and then there's a 211, then there's a bunch of guys between 212 and 214. And it still boggles my mind that that's the case here.
0: Yeah. And I think part of that is, you know, a mindset shift that needs to happen so like for example you know i was out at cim and uh, matt is the only male marathoner well matt and seth Totten. i'm coaching both those guys but you know matt like our goal was to go to cim and try and break 210 so that's what we set out to do that was the pace he was on through 30k and yet like not one person was willing to go and risk it and go for it and i think that's part of the problem is guys are content to run 211 212 and um, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's the very best that you got, then that's great. Like I'm stoked for you. But based on the talent that I'm seeing coming out of college and the talent of a lot of marathon guys out there right now, I'm like, they're not even close to tapping their potential. So like let's take some risk and let's go for it and let's not uh, let's not a uh, you know, settle for two eleven, two twelve.
1: While we're on the topic, how much of it do you think is psychological versus a physiological thing that needs to train or change with training?
0: I think a huge part of it is just like I was saying earlier, just being willing to take a risk. And you see that with African guys, like it doesn't matter. Like they're a 212 guy. They're going out with the lead group at like 203 pace, you know? <laughs> and obviously like you need some wisdom with that, but that's kind of the mentality you got to have. If you're going to run fast, it's like you got to be willing to go and put it on the line and, uh, that's something that I think is just going to have to be a mindset and a culture shift that's going to happen with men's marathon. And I'm hoping, too, that, you know, the men can kind of piggyback on what's going on with the women marathoners right now because, you know, they're lighting it up. And we're just seeing, you know, we had some injuries uh, with a lot of girls last year. But in overall, like they have just been doing amazingly well and the bar is just getting higher and higher and higher. So I'm hoping the guys can be can pick onto that mindset and be like you know if if they can do it why can't we do it
1: i love it well i appreciate your time i'm stoked that you're still involved in the sport and hope to catch up with you again soon all right thanks for having me on mario all right, we got it done. Hope you enjoyed this most recent episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you so much for listening in. I'd love your feedback. You can send it to me on Twitter. I'm at Mario Fraoli or you can just go to your podcast app that you're listening to this on and leave a rating and a review. Helps new listeners discover the show. Only takes a minute, and it is the easiest way to show your support. Thank you to Rise Run Retreat for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Rise Run Retreat is a four-day women's running retreat that takes place from May 16th to the 19th in Vermont. It was founded on the idea that when women come together through running, they inspire and strengthen one another. You'll explore country lanes, run through gentle wooded trails, listen to inspiring guest speakers, and participate in numerous workshops. The retreat is limited to just 16 women, and small-scale setting makes for a unique and impactful experience. Your registration includes all of your lodging, wholesome meals provided by the local farmer's market, and an amazing swag bag. The deadline to sign up is April 7th, and it will fill up fast. So head to riserunretreat.com for more information and use the code TMSPOD. That's all caps, all one word, and save $100 off of your registration fee. Uh, Let's see, what else? If you're digging this podcast, sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe for my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that I also think you'll enjoy. Finally, a big thank you to John Summerford of bearsrecords.com for handling all the audio production for the show. He's a big part of my small team and helps make the Morning Shakeout sound as good as it does week in and week out. He also created all the music himself, which is pretty rad. I think that's it. Until next time, I'm Mario Fraioli and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast.